0: Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, the Managing Partner. I'd like to welcome everyone to this week's weekly macro call lots to talk about in the macro space as the theme of 2020 continues will will the U.S. government get a spending bill will it shut down will there be further stimulus
1: Thanks, everybody, for joining us. The remaining two months of the Trump presidency are going to be very interesting. We've already seen some action in attempt to, you know, lock in the Trump administration's positions, both domestically and abroad, and I fully expect that to continue for the remaining two months. But first, let's start with the forever simmering issue that is pandemic relief and additional stimulus in Washington. It, It seems that these talks have been ongoing for literally 10 months now. And it comes in bits and drabs. And it seems like the last couple of days have been no different. John, we've seen conflicting comments from Speaker Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Schumer, as well as Senate Majority Leader McConnell, regarding the state of these talks. It's kind of, you know, seemed to me at least like the Democrats are inviting the Republicans back to the negotiating table. But at the same time, in that invitation, there's been no effort to bridge the gap between the Republicans offer of 500 billion and the Democrats offer of around 2.2 trillion. Do the, the recent, you know, back and forth, does that change anything with our expectations for fiscal stimulus during the lame duck session?
2: Well, look, I, I regard the invitation as, as something of a political stunt, to put it bluntly. Quite frankly, these leaders need to pick up the phone and talk to one another, not just release public letters and The invitation and even other public comments that both sides have made basically said that the opening point of negotiations is the impasse. Well, this is the same impasse we've had since July. And so saying, yeah, we want to get back to the negotiating table and our positions are the impasse is not productive. It's not conducive to a new round of successful negotiations. And there's not a lot of time there are fewer than 15 legislative days in order to get something through. Could these meetings happen on non-legislative days? Of course. And they should be happening around the clock if need be. But despite what leadership says in both parties, where they say that pandemic relief is their number one goal, it's not. It's funding the government. And that has to take priority. Government funding runs out on December 11th. It looks like those talks are going fairly well. Senate Appropriations Chairman Richard Shelby had a productive, and that's his characterization, phone call with Speaker Pelosi over the weekend. And it looks like those talks throughout this week have continued to mature and that we will not have a government shutdown. We've always said that we don't believe we'll have a government shutdown. Of course, we do have a very distracted White House. Let's put it that way. But we still don't believe we'll have a government shutdown. However, the pandemic negotiations look exactly the same as they have since July, which is a lot of talk, a lot of smoke, but no fire.
1: It's safe to say that the status quo remains and that we don't really expect any breakthrough on that front. However, as you said, the the upcoming funding deadline will, will be addressed properly by Congress. So John, what what does that mean then for remaining two months of the Trump presidency? It doesn't seem like then they're going to be focused on getting a spending bill, so they should have time conceivably to you know focus on many other issues. We already have seen some action on China. We've written in our previous macro notes that we're expecting the Trump administration to continue to finalize rulemaking processes which are nearing conclusion. Can you run us through, are there any low piece of low hanging fruit there that immediately come to mind that you're expecting them to continue with?
2: Yes, but let me preface this by just saying, if instead of trading terse public comments, the sides decided actually to sit down in the room together, my view on what might be possible in the short time remaining would change. The White House is very disengaged from the process So this is really a discussion between McConnell and Pelosi. But so what is the administration trying to roll out? Yes, they're trying to finalize rules. I thought it was quite interesting that in the wake of the vaccine announcement by Pfizer, in particular, that the president decided to, or the White House decided to resurrect the Medicare pharmacy proposal, which tied reimbursement to a basket of worldwide prices for pharmaceuticals. I don't think that was an accident, so that is something that the White House is trying to rush out. The White House is also trying to sign executive orders that are going to make some things more difficult for President-elect Joe Biden to undo, both because they won't be at the top of his to-do list and also because of the Supreme Court ruling earlier this year that you have to go through notice and comment procedures, even if an executive order is invalidly issued. That was a very strange ruling, but one that the White House lost its case at the Supreme Court, but it's certainly using the precedent there to its advantage now. There are one thing on, on the energy front, it's been a longstanding Republican policy for uh, George Bush sort of brought it to the forefront, but it's actually, if you ask a lot of Alaskans, been a policy that has been important to Alaska for about 50 years to drill in Anwar. It may be more divisive now than, it, than at any time previous, but what the White House has done over the last several years is extend leases to people, and that is a vested federal interest. So you can't just go and abrogate a lease if you're the federal government without paying damages. So the White House is, tr- is trying to open up Anwar. That's something that is really resisted on the Democratic side. Now, would a president-elect Biden would be faced with his administration would be trying to slow walk the process for environmental reviews or do other things or be forced to pay damages to any uh, leaseholders with a vested interest. So there are things like that where the president's trying to solidify his legacy. Some things may be undone by a new administration, but it will be a slog, and they'll have to pick and choose carefully what they want to undo, slow walk, or are faced with.
1: You made me think there. Do you have any opinion the Keystone Pipeline, it really, you know, energy infrastructure between the United States and Canada is is really a big issue for the Canadians. They largely need additional infrastructure to get their products out to market. They, they've struggled with that. And Biden has pretty much promised unequivocally to end many of these pipelines and potential projects. That, to me, is, is a very bearish thing for Canada. Now, what strikes me, though, is the fact that Prime Minister Trudeau was the first to call Vice President Biden, congratulating him upon his election. The prospects for bilateral relations to improve dramatically there, because it's no secret that Trudeau and Trump do not exactly get along. The prospects for, for that improvement are, are quite high, and I and I do see that. However, I'm trying to think about how they square, you know, the inability to see eye to eye on some of these issues. Is that something where you could see a Biden administration reversing course or at least, you know, not taking action early on in the presidency to end the pipeline like
2: that you know i have not looked at the pipeline issue for some time so i would have to review where it is as a legal matter but actually there was support for it within the obama administration it then became politicized and the obama administration started to walk back its support but i don't know as a legal matter who now has been given certain guarantees that would have to be revisited
1: I think that the way that the Trudeau administration tries to thread the needle with the Biden administration on some of these energy issues, because it's really a vulnerable issue for Prime Minister Trudeau, because he, you know, he talks broadly and and at length about uh, environmentalism, but at the same time, he has to square Canada's dependence on hydrocarbons, and it's very difficult for him to walk the line, and and these pipelines are are representative of that, and it doesn't help that they go through the first people's land, and a variety of issues. The other thing I wanted to touch on, John, in, in the next two months, And a Biden administration's reaction to it would be some of the Trump administration's upcoming China actions. We already have seen, we already have seen executive orders talking about U.S. investment in companies that are owned by or controlled by the Chinese military. There are potential upcoming restrictions on, you know, tech firms. We still have the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA in conference, which should be concluded in December. And there are provisions in there talking about delisting of Chinese companies if they don't fully disclose, uh, if they do not provide access to their books. You know, there's a lot of bilateral issues there. And and I think that the Trump administration is going to try to lock some of this in prior to the Biden administration coming in. Do you think that President-elect Biden has political room near the beginning of his tenure as president to reverse some of these more
2: headline China actions? I think it's going to be very difficult. Most of them are bipartisan, and you have a dynamic, not that it's absent from the Republican side, because it isn't, but it, it is felt with a lot more acuity on the Democratic side, and that is going after China not just for trade issues or military issues in terms of balance of payments on the trade side, but labor protections, environmental standards, and above all, human rights. So, there are far more concerns about China on the democratic side now there's also there tends to be a less belligerent approach, but i and we have fairly well if if that is your attitude, compartmentalized trade issues with China from larger strategic issues with China. Maybe that's not the right approach, but that is the approach that administrations have taken. both parties for many decades. I think it's going to be more difficult on the Democratic side to look soft on China. There's a reason Nixon went to China, and the host of concerns among Democrats is legion. If you look at the NDAA and you search for the word China, which I did yesterday in in all its various drafts, you'll be sitting there for several hours because there's, there's a lot of antipathy towards China, and that's just on the military side.
1: Well look, I, I think that the next two months are going to be, are going to go by quick, but it's going to be something that we need to keep an eye on because I do believe that at a certain point, these executive actions and orders and, and regulatory action are, are going to come to the forefront and we'll be on top of it. Um, but I, I, I do think that there's a lot of, uh, the prospects for dramatic and rapid change in the last two months here are are more so than I believe, you know, exist between most pre- the transitions in most presidential administrations just because of the sheer difference in opinion, difference in rationale, difference in perspective globally, and the antipathy between the two parties. So with that, we'll ship out of the United States and, and into Europe where they have their own antipathy of their own, uh, I suppose, part. The never-ending budget recovery package debate in Europe is time-intensive as well. This week, Hungary and Poland are blocking it largely over the rule of law mechanism. The heads of state and government are meeting today via teleconference. Is this something that you're expecting progress today on this or, you know, considering Hungary and Poland's, you know, positions to date, you're not really expecting anything?
3: Yeah, thank you, Chris. The mood in Brussels today is quite pessimistic, so th- th- there isn't an expectation of a of a breakthrough at these talks. Just so we all know what all is at stake, so that's the seven year multi annual financial framework or MFF, the the seven year budget guidance for two thousand twenty one through two thousand twenty seven, as well as the seven hundred fifty billion next generation EU kind of recovery and support package that is supposed to be approved today. So, in the absence of a agreement you know in theory the EU could just do bare bones spending starting January 1 on things like humanitarian relief and and the farm subsidies those are sheltered from any uh, any of these approval mechanisms but there is a need for this fiscal stimulus in the, in the 750 billion package and in the absence of an agreement that money won't start flowing on on January 1
1: and, and so then i guess you know one of the next questions on that bart is just the fact that the incentives here are odd right because at least as far as I know, Hungary and Poland stand to benefit, you know, almost the most out of all of these European countries from this package. So, considering that, how do you square this, and and what types of resolutions are are possible to come to a you know any type of agreement on this and move it forward?
3: Yeah, you're right about that. They both benefit generally from budgetary allocations at the EU level. They also stand to benefit disproportionately from the um, from the Next Generation Support Package. At some point, they will likely back down. There's some, some other angles to this. One is that, like I said, if, if the EU switches to a bare bones, a minimal spending, firm subsidies are protected. Firm subsidies are important for both countries. So they may have an initial calculation that in that framework, at least initially, they, they would be fine. The second, more importantly, is that neither country uses the euro. And in the end, the 750 billion support package, if we think about its origins, it was also to provide financial stability in the Euro area, make sure that the currency survives. If Italy starts having problems financing itself in the debt markets again, as a result of this, there'll have to be some workaround that doesn't involve Hungary and Poland, but perhaps through the ESM or some other way.
1: So, so then at the end of the day, um, it seems to me like you, you believe then that this is not just posturing or like pandering to the domestic crowd in, in Warsaw, in, in Poland, a much bigger and systemic issue rather than just some sort of small diversion in order to you know seem like they're getting concessions at a broader eu
3: yeah and it's a conflict that will be with us budget or not it's Strongly felt in the European Parliament that both countries on women's rights, on gay rights, on freedom of the press, on all these topics are are moving in the wrong direction. There's the votes in in the European Parliament to withhold funds from them for this reason regardless. So that's a stick behind the door. So I think it's both political leaders fighting this fight as often and as hard as they can because it's you know, for a matter of you know, transfer of sovereignty, and, and they really don't want what they view as intrusion in their internal affairs. And on the other side, the EU, the Commission, and the Parliament are adamant that what they call the EU as a community of values. So this is with us for the duration.
1: In terms of pressure points, you know, what could move the ball forward a little bit faster here? COVID cases are obviously rising quickly in, in Europe mm-hmm. as well as in the United States. Does that, you know, increase pressure on these individual states Does that have the potential to alter any type of thinking here?
3: Yeah, the the usual answer to the question, kind of what will make this move in Europe is is Angela Merkel, right? So I suspect she will be quite active. The other is the risk I just outlined. If there's severe financial markets pressure, either on on sovereign issuers or on bank issuers, and the ECB is not able to keep rates low, support financing in the market, you would see a solution very quickly.
1: What's next in terms of lockdowns in Europe and potentially how long can this last? Obviously the cases are rising very quickly.
3: Growth rates in Europe are declining again a little bit. So it looks like the peak was about two weeks ago, just below hospital capacity on an EU-wide basis. I think you see the same debates, political debates, about lockdowns and other restrictive measures that you see here in the US and and just globally. People generally don't want this. Governments feel they have the responsibility to protect the public health and uh, the hospital system. And it's the same difficult debate everywhere, you know, mainland EU and then then, uh, also in the U.K. Okay, where uh, Boris Johnson, you know, gets criticised over you know everything he does and doesn't do. So they, it, it's difficult politically because there's just no way of winning it, and the tolerance is much reduced. The, the country that I'll name as an exception is where people generally have taken these in stride is Spain. But everywhere else, there's there's protests, there's alternative facts movements, and you know the, the usual conspiracy theories and, and other nonsense.
1: Bart, the last thing I wanted to touch on today is your heat map update. This week, you talked about Egypt. You said it was set to outperform regional peers. Some of that has to do with expanded public health capacity and a relatively low strain on that capacity. Can you run us through
3: what you're seeing there? Heatmap compares kind of the pandemic fate and economic impact of 75 emerging and frontier markets and it force ranks them in terms of risk to their debt repayment capacity. One thing about global growth rates, is real quick, stable at 17%, so we we use two-week growth rates and it's it's been creeping up slowly, the global growth rate, but it appears to be stabilizing. So, as of a few uh, weeks ago. It looked like it was going to go completely out of control, but now, at least this week, it it looks to be stabilizing, so that's potentially good news. Egypt does well in this comparison. It's a bit of an odd note to write because Egypt is in in the red on the heat map. What they've done is headed off any risk to their repayment capacity by approaching the IMF early. So as a standalone consideration, they they would look quite weak, but they were one of the first to approach the IMF, have a fairly sizable, fairly targeted package for pandemic relief that they were able to get access to early in in May, about 1% of GDP And then they additionally have this 12-month standby arrangement for for $5.2 So they really have no risk to their ability to to repay their their debt, even though their interest burden is, is quite high.
0: I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.